Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. My name is Lori, and I am super excited today to be joined by Alyssa, who's actually the meme meme wizard behind the DBT Exchange Instagram account. And uh, that's a really, really popular account for many of you. I'm sure you'll know Alyssa's work on DBT Exchange already. And really excited to have you here. We have so much to talk about. Um, we both have tons of interest in peer support looking forward to talking about advocacy and the impacts of chronic illness on our mental health. So Alyssa, maybe I'll pass over to you and you can just share a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm so grateful to be here. And uh, um, I don't know how many people will know my account, but uh, I definitely love making memes and bringing irreverent humor to the experience of living with uh, BPD. And so when I just got, uh, when I was sending too many memes to my therapist, I just kind of created the account and went from there. But yeah, I'd be happy to share a bit about my story. That'd be great. I do want to say, though, that that's absolutely hilarious that you started it because of sending too many memes to your therapist. I think that is the greatest thing ever. My my first meme ever was about apparent competence. And I I don't know if you watched Game of Thrones. I did not. Oh, okay. Okay. Then this reference will make no sense at all. So, but it'll, it'll make sense to everybody else. So you can still say the reference. I'm sure they'll love it. There was like an older witch who looked really beautifully externally kind of very young and was like this like gorgeous character. And then, but underneath it all, she would kind of uh, transform into an, uh, a witch and, you know, just the whole, an elderly witch who just did not look that appealing. So I did them juxtaposed uh, side by side, you know, the beautiful one who has it all together, apparent competence, and then the witch who's like falling apart at the seams, unrelenting crisis. And that was my first meme. I love it. And it's just grown from there. I mean, I was just looking at Instagram and there's at least 17 super feelers that follow you. So I'm sure there's many more as well that I don't happen to follow on Instagram that follow you. So tons of, tons of people, 4,000 followers, which is amazing. All right. So let me jump into my story. Basically it really started in 2017 with just a major depressive episode, you know, not working at home, finding it difficult to eat, leave my house. And at some point at the end of that year, I kind of got a bit back on my feet as in eating again, going to work again, uh, leaving my house. In 2018, though, I was in a great deal of pain and crying a lot. And to be honest, because of some of the trauma around that time, I don't necessarily remember much of it. I feel that there are a lot of blank spaces in my memory. But at some point, I just realized that my life had become so, so small and I was just in so much pain. So in hindsight, I don't even know how I did this, but I truly sacrificed everything to get help. Uh, I was essentially, I was sort of in an airplane that I knew was about to explode, but I had no idea whether or not I had a parachute in my bag. So I just kind of jumped out anyway. And I live in New York City, but I went to a partial hospitalization program, a PHP in California. And at that time, it was named Resilience. 
Wow, that's I, so far away. Okay, like, so far away. I I took three months medical leave from work. Uh, Lori, when I tell you, I had never been in anything outside of individual therapy. I mean, I had never been hospitalized. I had never been in intensive therapy of any kind. And I was literally leaving my home to go across the country to go to therapy eight hours a day and, you know, not knowing a soul there and really not even understanding necessarily what the program was, what I could expect. But I, I had known someone, I had met someone on a retreat who lived in California and she didn't know why I was going there. But she let me live to live with her for a month. I think I kind of played it off like I just needed a break. And I never wow. actually told her. I know. In, I, I was, in hindsight, I don't know what I was thinking. She eventually found out um, and was very supportive and very kind. And I, um, at that time, I didn't have a substance abuse issue. But I ended up living in a sober living home so that I would have a place to stay after staying with her for that month. Because Sorry, how was, old were you at this age, uh, at this time? Uh, that's a good question. I was 34 years old. I had okay. not been diagnosed with borderline at this point. Mm. And it was essentially uh, a big part of it was when my ex married somebody else in 2017 and things just kind of spiraled. Uh, my therapist of uh, about four or five years ghosted me. Oh and I, I think I was experiencing a lot of the BPD symptoms that, you know, historically tend to push people away, like maybe rage and paranoia, maybe some psychosis even. And, you know, I know that that can sound very extreme and it really is an extreme feeling and sensation. And it it's just so confusing at the time. And then people in your support network are just leaving you. And I truly do not know how I found the courage to pack my a suitcase, get on an airplane, go to California. I mean, I was essentially really barely leaving my home outside of going to work. And I was in a state of constant panic, like just panic and distress. Just what did she do for work again at the time? I prefer not to say. Okay, <laughs> that's totally, no, that's totally fine. I was... Yeah. I didn't know if, what, no, what there, the deal was, but there was a fine. lot of crying at my cubicle. People, <laughs> I became an outcast at work. I'm sure people mm-hmm. just did not acknowledge me or come around me. And I can't blame them. It was a little frightening, to be honest. Like I had clearly lost a lot of weight and become like gaunt and was crying at my desk. Like, yeah. you know, very so clearly I, in crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And so I ended up at this PHP in California and very thankfully was just met with a tremendous amount of support and it really changed my life. And even though it's about four and a half years later, and it's been a very long grind to get to higher ground, that was really the starting point for me that even gave me some sense that my life could be worth living again. I love California. It's beautiful. The weather, the hiking, I made a handful of friends. I was living it up. I I, I learned about sound baths for the first time and breath work and at the sober living house, there was like an amazing acupuncturist to the stars. And it was like this really dope mansion in Los Angeles. I would have never been able to live in a house like that ever. 
and I was driving in like convertibles and the top came down like it I was on a Malibu beach it like really it went from my life was like complete darkness to like maybe at some point I could feel alive again and I had that sense it really gave me a kickstart and then when I came back home to New York, it was a major crash landing because I was coming back yeah. to no support at all. I had mostly everybody in my life was alienated. And um, so I was coming back to no support, but I very, very luckily and gratefully had somehow stumbled upon a comprehensive DBT team. And very quickly, I got myself into individual DBT therapy, a DBT group. Uh, it was comprehensive. So I had the phone coaching and, you know, things were very, very touch and go, but through a real grind, that therapist helped me to come back to myself. And, you know, I know some people say that, you know, my, the only role model that I ever had for BPD there, you know, I didn't know where to go. There weren't many people on the scene. So I fall, I somehow got introduced to, uh, she's known as Debbie Corsa or, oh, I'm not supposed to say any names. Um, well, that, but she, she's, okay. If she's a public figure, that's She's fine. a public figure. Yeah. And her pen name is Debbie Corsa. She wrote a couple of books and, you know, watching her stories on YouTube, you know, I saw that she went into remission and she went into recovery after two years. Meanwhile, when I, I mean, it's really been a lot of starts and stops for me. So that, that wasn't my journey. I'm that person who, you know, I mean, I don't want to say it's been day in and day out for me because I'm sure it is for everybody, but mm-hmm. it's really been very day in and day out. Um, so that that's some of my story. And then about in 2021, I got involved in uh, BPD peer support, and that's been a huge part of my recovery. Um, it's given me a sense of confidence, contribution, and I'm really good at it, thankfully. Like, they recently, I've been working for them as a consultant for a couple of months now uh, with Emotions Matter. And now I've been brought on as staff to train other people to be group facilitators. And I've been facilitating DPD peer support groups. And, you know, actually, I, you know, I'm not trying to make myself sound like Mother Teresa here. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, when I, you know, I had gone through so much suffering and pain that I just could not make sense of it. And having grown up in a bit of a, not a bit, I grew up in a religious community and my whole life I was spiritual. I mean, I remember as young as seven and eight talking to God every night, um, you know, and I, a higher power and I just could not make sense of everything I had been through and the absolute lows of the lows. And I just, I remember going into PHP and my prayer was just like, please let me help. Please like, let me just be of help at some point. That that was just the only thing that I felt could be a bomb for all the pain. It, it was the only thing yeah. that I thought would make sense of my life. And I wasn't wrong. You know, it's really, really been a huge, meaningful, purposeful part of my life. And so, of course, there are more elements, but I've spoken for a while. So I just want to give you some time to kind of jump in, you know, if there's anything you want to ask. Yeah, I have many questions. But first of all, I just want to say I do so relate to that kind of concept of if I if I'm not helping people, then everything I went through was for nothing, essentially. And like 
what can I do to take this horrific experience and turn it into something positive? And I think like peer support and being in a helping field is such a beautiful way of doing that. And I still would love to recruit you to be a super feelers co-host, just saying. <laughs> so, I love super feelers. I love, I really enjoy yay. being a participant. Yeah. I'm so glad we love having you. So, so the California program, I have many questions. <laughs> so one, how did you find that program? You know, my psychiatrist who at the time, God bless her, she was really trying to help me, but I was free falling. And remember my therapist had ghosted me when I probably need to be hospitalized, but the psychiatrist was giving me a slew of medications. I was probably definitely over-medicated, but they were trying to stabilize me to uh, no avail. But very luckily, this psychiatrist referred me to some kind of case manager who her job was to refer people to programs that could help them. I mean, I'm in New York. I don't know why there aren't programs here, but really Mm -hmm. the best programs that I was picking between was between California and Florida. And the reason I really kind of leaned towards California was I have been there a number of times. I have some distant relatives who live there. And I guess I like the idea that push came to shove. If I really, really needed to reach out in an emergency, I had some relatives there who I could reach out to. And I I did actually touch base with them while I was there. And, you know, it was nice. So that's why I ended up going to California. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And I wonder if there's a reason that the programs that you found are in California and Florida, where it's like nice and sunny and like by the water, which is super helpful for your wellness, right? Um, maybe Absolutely. that's maybe New York is not necessarily the ideal spot in terms of like mental health and connection to outdoors. Um, Absolutely, especially if you have seasonal affective disorder. Totally, and like I kind of think every not necessarily to the stakes to the point of a disorder, but I don't know if anybody doesn't get affected by the seasons like that, right? I mean, I live in Vancouver. And it's beautiful here. And like, we're by the water, but it rains all the time. (laughs) Like it will rain for three months straight and there will be not one day of sunshine and that gets pretty rough. So yeah, I mean, like places like California and Florida aren't going to have that problem as much as um, we would. Um, And then the other question that I had was how, how did you afford these things? Like, it sounds like kind of bougie programs. You know what? That's such a great question. I I happen to have really good health insurance, which I know is such a huge luxury. And the program was extremely expensive. And somehow my insurance, my health insurance paid for it. And I, I was pretty broke at the time. I was able to find someone to house it, my apartment and my cat. I basically used every last dollar. I happen to have a free flight on my credit card. And I think my copay was like $30 a day for like three months. And I remember he waived it. Yeah, because that even that could have just been really cost prohibitive for me. Mm -hmm. And I think I had just enough money to pay for the sober living. I, you know, it was a period of grace in my life, how all of the pieces came together the way they did. I just, and some of the people that I met, I I feel like I, there were so many times in my life where I was hanging on by a thread 
but some, I think of it as like a cobblestone path over a river where somehow when I would take the next step and it looked like almost total darkness, somehow that cobblestone would appear. And I, I truly don't know how. And, and angels, like people along the way would show up and help me. And I think that's why I'm also so committed to paying it forward because I'm here in a large part to the grace and kindness, compassion and friendship and support of other people. And I just want to pay it forward. So. And I think sometimes things just do work out that way, right? I mean, obviously things hadn't worked out that way up until that point because so many of us end up in that rock bottom or whatever free fall like you like you said so well and then things start turning around are you um you mentioned that you grew up in a religious household are you still religious no i'm not religious it it wasn't any like uh hostility towards religion i just see myself as more spiritual and that has been a part of my journey and that's why you know in dialectical behavior therapy dbt skills i think I know that my favorite skill is wise mind, uh, which I think of as intuition, presence, life force, soul, however you want to see it. The idea that, you know, and when you have BPD and comorbidities and you've, you've been at rock bottom, you can absolutely feel broken, particularly when you've experienced an element of psychosis and paranoia. Mm, uh, is that part of your experience? That was, yeah, the BPD stress-related paranoia. Thank, thank God I don't have psychosis, but it definitely leaves its mark when you've had it ever. And totally. Yeah, but I, I do get this stress-related paranoia in terms of thinking that people in my life are upset at me or they're mm-hmm. mad at me for some reason, you know? Totally. I very much know. <laughs> I um, I have major issues around like that fear of, being a bad person or being like kind of hated, even if there's no evidence of that. Um, So yes, I very much know that. And it's interesting because at kind of my worst, I would say, or like close to, I did have some stress-related psychosis in the form of seeing things that weren't there, Um, Mm -hmm. but only a couple of times, but you're right. Like it, I have to be very clear with my you know, I actually had a psychiatrist referral the other day and, you know, oh, have you ever seen things that aren't there? And it's like, yes, but only when I'm like 15 years ago in intense periods of stress, like it's not actually psychosis because you can get ruled out for psychosis from a lot of programs. Um, So you talked about comorbidities. Let's um, dive into that a little bit. What does that look like for you? Well, you know, without going into the long laundry list, uh, you know, one of the more prominent ones I think has been OCD. And so I've had to do exposure and response therapy. And it's sort of fascinating and interesting the way that OCD and BPD, you almost feel like they can kind of propel one another. Yep. And, you know, for me, when I, I hear about borderline. I mean, to me, like depression and anxiety almost feel like throwaway diagnoses. I'm kind of like, oh, is there anyone who doesn't have depression and anxiety? Like, you know, I I just feel like that kind of comes hand in hand with borderline. I may be under a misperception, but no, I would, I would be surprised if there's anybody with a borderline diagnosis that has not had at least a period of being diagnosed with depression or anxiety. Like I, I don't think I've ever met one. Yeah. And, you know, I, as of right now, I 
I believe my, my therapist has indicated that I seem to really, my symptoms of BPD are very reduced. Uh, you know, we never sat down and said, is it recovery or not? But, you know, the symptoms we've really been addressing more so now are complex PTSD. And this could be an interesting segue into some of the physical health issues I've been having in my life for the first time in my life. You know, I've always had to address mental health issues. And then as of February, I was kind of hit with a physical health issue, having a ton of symptoms, having to go to doctor after doctor where they don't know what's going on, gaslighting, having like a good day, then like being knocked out for weeks or days, uh, Mm -hmm. lots of body aches and pain. And um, I I mean, just random symptoms that I didn't even know the body could do, but it has very much altered my life. And the interesting thing is that at that time I had, because I had really, you know, I was really beginning to gain momentum in my life, you know, like taking guitar lessons and my relationships and my peer work. And I was gaining that stability and we started EMDR. I forget what it all, eye movement desensitization. Yeah. EM, uh, eye movement, rapid desensitization, I think. Yeah, Google it, folks. Google. Yeah, I was like, we should, we should know that, but I can't think, I can't think of what it stands for right now. But something like that, repetitive. Yeah. yeah anyways, whatever. It it helps to process trauma, and you know, it really, really. What we started it, my therapist and I, and I, I was really feeling some internal shifts, and so that self loathing was dissipating. I was really making progress. And then boom, very early on, I got hit with this chronic physical illness. And, you know, at this point, I'm not entirely sure that there isn't a connection. I have come to see that on the days when my physical symptoms are really high, I notice that I'll get like trauma memories. And Hmm. but by this point, I have become pretty convinced that you know, it's so interesting because my trauma really taught me a lot about shame and silence and staying small. And this, my body, I think was sending like, you know, because I'll talk to the pain and I'll say, what are you trying to teach me? Like, what do you want me to know? And so much of it has been advocate, advocate, speak your voice. And I went through months and months of pain and only recently at when my feet are to the fire, I reclaimed my voice and have become, have begun advocating for myself. I just feel like my body was like, you were going to advocate for yourself or we are taking you down. Like Mm. we're taking you out, girl. (laughs) So, and what, like, have you figured out what the physical health issues are yet or is it still a bit unknown it's still a bit unknown I have a bunch of random symptoms like now I'm experiencing heat in my arms and face and for anyone who's had prolonged medical symptoms which I I never would have been able to relate to this beforehand uh, particularly when doctors don't know what's going on in a chronic uh, for a chronic health issue there is so much gaslighting that takes place I mean One very small example is I went to see a rheumatologist who checks for autoimmune disorders because I thought maybe that's what it was because usually things that have a bunch of random symptoms, they just say you have an autoimmune issue. 
And stress is so correlated with autoimmune issues, right? And trauma. So it would make sense. Yes. And, you know, the first time I met the rheumatologist, I, he put such a fine point in the fact he's like, your inflammation markers are through the roof. They are through the roof. I mean, it was like jarring. I'm like, what do I do? You know, I'm like, do I need to be hospitalized? Like, what are you telling me here? The second session, after he had done extensive blood work, testing for everything, apparently I have no autoimmune diseases at this time. And he was looking through the same exact paperwork and go, yeah, you know, your inflammation markers are are somewhat, you know, they're slightly elevated. I'm like, what? But, you know, just weeks ago, you had me in a total panic. And so that's the kind of thing that will happen. And as someone who is used to chronic self-invalidation, you know, I just felt that I felt that my, I got to the point where my eyeball could have popped out of the socket. But if the doctors were looking at me and saying, you're fine, I would have just gone home and been like, okay, I'm fine. They're saying I'm fine. No, I'm not fine. And it wasn't until I learned how to act opposite to shame, self-validate, use the fast skill, which is a DBT skill related to self-respect. I, I had to find my voice. And as a person who really didn't know how to advocate for myself, I didn't intentionally or consciously realizing that I was suppressing so much of myself. But I guess when you feel like you're invisible and you have no voice, you just, your system doesn't tell you like you're no you're so disconnected from your needs and your sense of self and it just got to the point where if you know if I wasn't going to reclaim those things or if my internal system wasn't going to didn't find a way to reclaim those things I, like I was gonna die like you know so yeah. that to be totally <laughs> very like hyperbolic I guess but it felt that way yeah and do you feel like your mental health diagnoses impacted the way that you were treated by physicians about your physical health? Yeah, because, you know, my primary care physician who I've had for at least like 20 years now, and, you know, she she's a very good person and she's definitely pursued this with me. But I, I think at our one of our last meetings when she was really just like so confused by everything, she's like, okay, you know, I think if after these appointments, these next two appointments, if nothing comes up, maybe you'll have to see a psychiatrist, you know, some people with long COVID. And, and she's not ill intentions, but she, I guess she had known that I, she had known me when I had that psychosis. And you know, and I, I was asking her very curiously and very genuinely, like, oh, you know, can my mind, you know, increase my sed rate or, you know, put the protein in my urine or like, you know, I showed her my arm because my arms have been red despite my leaving the house. And I said, like, can my mind do that? You know, maybe you can. And she's like, no. And then she asked me, she's like, well, you know, if you're walking outside between the hours of 12 to two, it would. And I'm like, but why would I bring it to your attention? you know, if I'm like sunbathing from 12 to two in the afternoon, I'm not going to be like, Hey doc, why are my arms red? Totally. Yeah. And then she like asked me if I was on opioids, which, you know, again, I, I don't fault her for checking that box, but I said, no, I said, I'm not on opioids. And if I was, I, you know, I wouldn't waste your time or my time and I wouldn't be coming in to run all these tests. 
And meanwhile, she was the one who had originally been worried and panicked and sending me to a hematologist to see if I have cancer. So uh, a very long answer is yes. And, you know, interestingly enough, even if your diagnosis isn't necessarily on the chart, right, usually they ask you for what medications you're on. And, you know, I'm not on a long list of medications, you know, perhaps like I was in the past, but it might show that I, in the past, I've taken Abilify. I'm currently on Wellbutrin and Pristique, low doses, but still quite possible they treat me differently. That's been my experience is whenever I told anybody that I was taking Seroquel or Cotiapine, they'd be like, oh, and then I would be treated differently because that's a, that's an antipsychotic technically. And so even if they didn't ask what the diagnosis was, they assumed that it was psychosis related right. and then treated me differently. Or they would say, why are you taking this? And if I was honest and said, because of borderline personality disorder, then of course the stigma would come back and they would treat me differently as well. So even if it's not like on your chart necessarily, it can still impact the care that you receive. I was wondering if you've ever had anybody like talk about something like, um, I think it's somatic symptom disorder or whatever, where I know that that's something that I've met a couple people with borderline in the past who like, who have physical chronic health conditions that they can't figure out this, the reason for. And then they're kind of told like, oh, it's in your head, which mm-hmm. is basically what that diagnosis is. No, no one has brought that up, but EMDR is a somatic therapy. And I do think it's quite likely that there's a connection between the body and trauma. And in some ways, I almost feel like what's been going on for me has been some kind of purging of this trauma from my body. Mm. And, you know, I work with a nutrition therapist and they are trauma informed. They I've been working with them for, you know, relatively short time, maybe three months or so, but they've been absolutely fantastic. And I was talking to them today and they were actually saying that they often see a symptom shift in their uh, patients with chronic illness as they go through this journey. And I, I thought that was so fascinating and they could probably be a really fantastic person to have on this podcast. Yeah. If you want to introduce me, I would love that. That would be really cool. Yeah. We're always happy to have guests that have different areas of expertise. You mentioned like you think that. I I think this is the wording you said, trauma and physical or physical health might be connected. And I think, I think that they are like, I think science has proven that now, Um, (laughs) even even looking at like adverse childhood experience research. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, I'm not, but I I love being proven right. So this is, yeah, I would highly look into adverse childhood experiences. So, I mean, it's, it's correlational research, so they can't prove that one causes the other, but there are some absolutely wild stats around like having a certain number of um like basically trauma experiences in childhood and it can like massively impact your physical health your mental health and your um like social development uh, i don't know if that's the right word but like social functioning let's call it so like things like being incarcerated or graduating school or um all of these things and it's being involved in like domestic violence or whatever major impacts from childhood trauma into adulthood based on those things. There's so much grief around that topic, I think, because trauma just feels like this thing that just keeps on giving, you know, not only do you have to, you know, I have complex PTSD. And so there was just a lot of trauma for me growing up. So it's like, 
not only did you have to experience that in your childhood and, and not have a positive experience growing up, but then, I mean, and this is a whole topic in and of itself, it just sometimes I think that, uh, or I know, especially family members who were maybe bystanders to the trauma and didn't advocate or act on your behalf, everybody just wants you to kind of put it in the past. And, you know, just why cause problems, you know, isn't this nice, you know, we're getting along now. And totally. Yeah, it's it's just like really excruciating. And it's easier for everyone if to, if you stay silent. And so you, you experience it as a young person, you live with the ramifications, it trauma is still impacting me in my day to day life, I have memories, invasive thoughts, I, you know, I have to spend all this money to get help and treatment. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have access and the ability to, but you know, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. And I, you know, I just also, this is a, a bit of a caveat, but when I first had these chronic health issues, you know, I just kept, I was told by a rheumatologist, a different one, that it would go away in a few months. And, you know, when I realized that wasn't happening and I needed more testing and I, I you know, I, I'm still hopeful that perhaps this will go away, but at some point I was on Instagram and looking up chronic illness memes. And, uh, you know, when you're physically ill, pretty much people in your environment don't know what to say. And they're not, they're well-intentioned, but they can be very invalidating. And you can feel very alone, very isolated. And so it's, it's difficult. So I went on Instagram and I was looking up chronic illness memes and it just really alleviated my pain. And I felt, I'm like, wow, if there are people making jokes about the things that I am newly experiencing in my day-to-day life, it just like took some of the weight off. And I had only started my DVT exchange account as, I guess, you know, humor is a part of my life, creativity, I found it fun, but it really showed me the impact that memes can have on people and humor when you're newly experiencing something, whether it's BPD or a chronic health issue, it just, if someone's, if something is common enough that people have made a joke about it to a meme, you know, you're definitely not alone. Mm-hmm. And I think it just, I was like, oh, wow, I'm so grateful that I put this content up. I, and I hope someone else is comforted in the way that I was. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. I love how full circle this came back to the meme account. And I love memes. I My poor husband must hate me because I, I just send him like, <laughs> I just send him things like all day. I'm just like, here's like 47 things that I just yes, like. Yes. And he probably hates it. But I think they're hilarious. And I also think that if you can't laugh, you're going to cry, basically. Right. And obviously, both of those things are valid. You can do either. You can do them at the same time. But I mean, Sarah and I, at the beginning of starting this podcast, were a little bit worried that people would not appreciate that we kind of laugh at ourselves and we laugh at borderline because it is a serious thing. Like there, you know, there, I'm not, I'm not denying that this, this challenge is a serious thing, nor is chronic illness. And, but also it's our experience and we can laugh at it. It's different if people who don't experience these things are sitting there like laughing at our pain but honestly 
without memes and gifts and all that stuff, I don't know if I would have made it through the pandemic, right? Like that was kind of the the thing that kept a lot of people going was just like absolute ridiculousness. And I am not very creative. It's just a, kind of like a mental block that I have, but I appreciate so much the people who can put together memes like you do and make us all relate to something that like feels so unrelatable when you're in it and when you're with like you know your average normal people for lack of a better word and you're like oh my god nobody feels like me and then you go on the internet and you're like oh well this meme has been shared a hundred thousand times so clearly somebody thinks like I do or somebody's experiencing this so validating absolutely the the common humanity and you know I appreciate those kind words and you know, in creating DBT Exchange, when I felt so alone, I was able to build a small community for myself. And, you know, I know there are other accounts that have, you know, tens of thousands of followers. And a part of me is kind of, is happy that my account is relatively small because I have a small community and I tend to interact with a lot of the same followers. And it just means a lot to me when they're so supportive and kind. And humor has been a huge way that I have survived my life. And I love bringing humor. I mean, I haven't been that funny in this conversation, but I I, I just, I love bringing a smile to people's face. And I, I think making lemonade from lemons has also gotten me through life and making meaning. Yeah. Totally. And it's also a totally different medium to be having a conversation about your story and also making it funny. We have a hard time doing that too. Um, it it It's one of those things that you can't force really. And I will make sure that I'm sharing all of your memes <laughs> when we, when this episode comes out in particular, just to be like, like, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about this, like common language and connection through mm-hmm humor and online platforms. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm curious, I like to end my episodes. Well, first of all, before we end the episode, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you really wanted to talk about? You know, the thing I'd like to talk about is just that maybe it's a little bit corny, but, you know, there have been times when I really thought there was no hope and I just I think that one life worth living moment can really, you know, I almost feel like if I, if you have one life worth living moment in maybe weeks or months of despair, like even just something as simple as putting your foot in the grass, but really being present with it and whatever that is for you, just even if I'm laying in bed and I'm playing with my cat sky or you know, when I, when I was able to swim in the ocean and life has been so surprising when I thought that nothing can get better, there was no way things were going to get better for me. I am really at the bottom of the barrel. And then I just have this life worth living moment. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm so grateful that I survived all this suffering and, and life worth living moments. It's not like winning the lottery or flying to outer space on Virgin Galactica. It's, it truly could just be something as just, you know, looking to the eyes of a close friend and, and really embracing the fact 
that I'm loved in that moment or being blessed to take a trip to Colorado to do a sound healing training. And um, that's actually sound healing has been something that really calms my nervous system. And just these, these blessings that you think can never come into your life and are so unexpected. It just, I have found that it really, it can feel like a dark room and then a candle is lit and you're, it just, it can bring so much light. I just wanted to share that thought. I just hope people keep going. I so appreciate the way that you shared that and really agree about capturing those smaller moments of life and joy and using those as kind of the motivation, the carrot to continue. I've started ending my episodes with the question around what are your favorite parts about having borderline? Mm. You know, the emotional empathy, you know, it definitely takes work for me to cognitively empathize sometimes, but I, I know that I have so much empathy and I, that creative element and we love big and we feel big. And I think because of some of the challenges and maybe some of the stigma around borderline, I just, I refuse to judge people. I refuse, you know, maybe there might be someone out there who's a little bit too activating for me, but I won't, I won't judge that person or their journey. And I think it's, it's also made me a lot more compassionate and kind And I know what it is to feel alone. And when I see someone who maybe is kind of on the outskirts in a room or when I I just really have a keen sense of when someone might feel alone and I try to bring them into the fold, I love the ways that Borderline has just made me thoughtful. And I know what it is to be abandoned. And so I, you know, really try to show up for people. And I'm very open to giving people second opportunities to, I I believe, I I don't believe in uh, throwing away people. I don't believe in cancel culture. I don't believe in throwing away people. And I just think without all the experiences that I had had with borderline, I don't, I don't think I would be this person. So, you know, I'm really honored and humbled to say that through the help of many people and communities and peer support, more and more each day, I'm growing into someone that I'm proud of. And that feels really awesome. What a beautiful way to end this episode. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for sharing your story with Thank us. Thank you so much. I loved being here. I hope to see you at Superfeelers again soon. and just keep on memeing. Um, you make us all laugh and feel validated and not alone. And um, we really appreciate all you do and um, the incredible human that you are. So thank you so awesome. much for coming on. Thank you so much. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey. And we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about borderline, and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. 
If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.